Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello everyone and uh, welcome back to yes another episode of God Pod. And um, it's you great. say that in a rather weary way. <laughs> Did I? I hope you don't mean it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> really. Okay, I'll start again. Cake. So I'll start again. <laughs> welcome back to a wonderful episode of God Pod. It is exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I do I don't feel weary at all. It's always a great delight to be doing God Pod, especially with the old team from the past. So Jane and Mike. Hello. You've already heard from me. <laughs> <laughs> So um, today we are, um, yeah, it is always great fun to talk together. And uh, we, we always, um, well, I hope you kind of pick up from listening to these conversations how much we enjoy them. I don't know whether you do listening, but we certainly do the chance to talk. That's all we care about. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's all we ever cared about. No, that's not true. No, no, we do care about people who listen to us too. But um, today we thought we would, um, we are recording this uh, towards the end of November. And uh, we have uh, Advent and Christmas on the horizon. And I think this one is going to come coming out just before Christmas. So uh, we thought we would talk about Christmas and uh, what it means today in our particular context, what it's meant to us in the past and what um, really matters to us about um, Christmas. And I suppose one of the, maybe a place to start is, is how you find the, the kind of contemporary Christmas because it has become this enormous great sort of festival of consumerism um, which kind of begins in September and I remember going to the garden shop about a month ago and the place was full of elves and Christmas trees and reindeer and everything else and this was you know this was beginning of October and we were miles off Christmas and so it's going to become this 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 great festival of something which feels quite different from the way Christians always thought about Christmas. How do you find that? Do you, do, you, do you find all the kind of stuff about it helpful, unhelpful? Do you hate it? Do you love it? Do you, or something in the middle? I've been very pleased at the sort of rediscovery of Advent. Um, I've, I've, I've just noticed over the last few years that more and more publishers, Christian publishers, are producing Advent books. Mainly by you, Jane. Well, exactly. <laughs> I didn't like to mention it, but thank you so much for <laughs> making that clear, Mike. Um, and that... Um, a lot of churches are choosing to do some Advent courses, not just Lent courses, but Advent courses. And I think there is this sense of wanting to rediscover a slightly um, slower approach um, so that when Christmas comes, it is actually Christmas. Um, and you, Because you, uh, the great thing about Advent is it makes you step right back and see God's preparations for this great event that have gone back, well, to creation. Um, uh, and see the whole world differently, shaped around mm. God's um, longing and willingness to come to live with us. Uh, the way in which the prophets and the patriarchs and everybody sort of um, is is lining up along this this high road towards oh. uh, the incarnation. Mm. Uh, and Advent really gives us that that sense of. Um, a, a of seeing the world completely differently so that we're ready for Christmas when it comes. And that's one of the, the odd things about it, isn't it? Because I guess the one place where Advent sort of invades popular culture is 
the advent calendar or yeah. the advent candle, normally with sort of bits of chocolate behind the the, um, the doors and so on. But I think they're going out having candles. Their days are numbered. Oh, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Will that joke make it to the final edit? I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not. And then we could use it in other contexts. <laughs> But I suppose that, that it sort of slightly gives the light to the kind of, you know, Christmas in October thing, because that seems to be anticipating too, a little bit too quickly what Christmas is, whereas the whole, the, what, what, what the Advent cal- calendar or the Advent candle. Do you have an Advent, Advent calendar in your home? Advent calendar? Yeah. Um, I found a really good one with a different sample of gin each day. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound so, of so that. Yes, absolutely. Very Isn't very it a good time of fasting? <laughs> <then>? <laughs> Yeah, we always, have, we always have a candle in our house, so we do a little bit each day. And there is that thing of, you know, just, it just, just makes you wait. Yeah. And it kind of teaches you patience and waiting rather than having it now. Possibly not so much when it's got a portion of gin in there. Well, that's anticipation rather than <laughs> waiting. <laughs> a little taste of the future. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, so that there's a, there is a great virtue in... And so we maybe want to restore the Advent candle and the Advent calendar as a spiritual practice that teaching the virtue of patience and waiting and the kind of perspective on Christmas that, that it gives you. And, and in a sense the commercial thing is is um, the fallout from St Gregory's advice to uh, Augustine of, Can- of Canterbury when he came over. He said you know, don't, don't kind of just get rid of what they're the ways that they're, they're worshipping, the places they're worshipping, the buildings they're worshipping, kind of convert them, mm. fill them with Christian content. Mm. Um, and on, on the one hand, that was hugely successful. It made it a much easier transition for people, mm. uh, conversion. Um, and as I, I think is, is both a, a successful and a respectful um, way of doing evangelism. Um, but the flip side is something of that pagan celebration continues um, and uh, I, I, I think it is on balance worth it I think we ride it I think it gives a sense of occasion and anticipation and build up on something really important and that gives us an opportunity to say well, what's important mm-hmm. if it's actually just the low point of the year fine mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. what why all that anticipation mm-hmm. um, we, we, we go through that every year yeah. And, and the sort of fundamental grasp of um, gift giving that yeah. this God, what God has done is, is give God's self to us in the incarnation and that, um, and that we respond with um, joy, gratitude, generosity and gift giving. Again, that's something I, I would love us as Christians to go on celebrating and not get too peeved about it. It's, I think the, the problem is when people overextend themselves and feel they have to give gifts they can't afford and don't want um, and then you lose that sense of what a gift actually is um, and the gift is I mean, often you know gifts that are <coughs> made personally as opposed to simply bought off the shelf can sometimes mean a great deal more and so I guess if, you know, if one of the things is redeeming the advent calendar as a crucial discipline the giving of gifts to think of that as a spiritual discipline too, as a, you know, the, in the, you know, we, we 
we learn giving by partly by by learning how to do it by 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 doing it our, ourselves and actually investing thought and care into the giving of gifts yes is part of that spiritual it's, discipline and even Christmas. if it's a bought gift if it's a well-chosen one that involves attending to the other person what mm. they would like how they think things how they look at things the things that interest them mm. there is actually a kind of movement away from the self <coughs> that's built into that when it works well and i suppose one of the other things about christmas is is the kind of preponderance of light in it in it all you know that, that i mean even now as i'm walking around the streets of london you see sort of lights up in the streets and everywhere else and as we get christmas has always been that you know we put lights on trees and we put lights on on, on our sort of you know front gardens and so on and I, and I, and I, okay, you can see that as a just making things pretty and looking at decorative, but but li light is right at the heart of Christian mm. Christmas, isn't it? You know, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it's back. It's it's kind of redeeming these parts of Christmas and investing them with meaning for our families and children and neighbours and friends and so on, and just focusing on those those parts that can get crowded out in the consumerist sort of um, frenzy but at the heart there's some really important Christian symbols in here. I must say I, uh, I do love a Christmas tree and I'm hoping Mike will be able to tell me um, some good biblical reason for loving a Christmas tree <laughs> um, but uh, and I, I know they're um, a, a 19th century importation in, in certainly in, in British Christmas um, but there's something again about that sense of bringing the wild outside into our homes mm -hmm. um, and um, and making that part of our celebration. It's as though we're, again, seeing worlds colliding um, in the action of God around Christmas. Yeah, and the way you decorate a tree, so... With lights. That's right, yeah. And Chris, you know, what, do, what do you put on the top yeah. of it? So, you know, you either put a star, um, which is, of course, the, the, the star of Bethlehem, or you put... Well, people talk about the fairy on the top of the Christmas tree, but of course it's not a fairy, it's, it's an angel. Yeah. It is the angel who brings the good news of, of, of the arrival of God in human form to, to the shepherds. And so again, you know, time and time again, there are these symbols that you, you kind of have to kind of reclaim them, if you like, as Christian things. And, and I read recently on a thing about, I think it was about Saxon, uh, Saxon Norman architecture, that the windows are not to let light in, they're to let light out. Mm. Mm. Uh, so that they can be seen. Uh, this is the, the windows of a church, or yes, the windows of, yes, of, a, of a church building. Not the windows of your advent candle ca uh, calendar no, with no, the no, with the gin behind them. No, I didn't want warmed up gin. No, exactly. Yep. Yep. Might ignite. Yep. Um, but no, that 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 is to let the light of Christ, yep. you know, the light of the candles, obviously physically, mm. um, be seen mm. all around. And then there, the, there's the heart of it, which is that these um, extraordinarily ordinary um, relationships, there's the mother and the baby, mm. um, they're of no importance as far as anybody else can tell, um, that we always do our uh, nativity scenes with the, with the, the animals, the beasts of burden uh, around, the sort of everyday stuff, which again is about um, God's commitment to the reality of the world. And, uh, and I think the figure of Mary um, saying yes to being part of this this great movement of God is is, is pivotal, isn't it? There's that m moment um, where where the angel comes and says to Mary, "Will you do this?" In effect, um, and 
um, and that, I find I always find that a very touching conversation between Gabriel and Mary because she could have said no because she she could have said no um, and that's a sort of we're told that God really knows Mary and when Mary sings out about what God is like in the Great Magnificat, clearly Mary knows God. <laughs> um, so it isn't a, it, it's a, an abstract possibility, you might say, that Mary says no, because actually God hasn't chosen her at random. <laughs> he does know her um, extremely well. But nonetheless, there's that, again, that sort of real, both tenderness and, um, and dignity that the angel gives Mary in that conversation. Um, that, that again says something hugely significant, I think, about what God is doing when God comes um, to be born as a, as a child and to live with us. And I think that there's what your point about the ordinariness of the people and the animals and whatever, it, it speaks to the kind of glorification of the ordinary mm. that happens at the incarnation. Suddenly, ordinary things are no longer ordinary things. Um, I remember. Um, I, I think it's a, a sermon by Francis Schaeffer called No Ordinary People, mm. which is based upon it. It's a Christmas sermon. There's just no such thing anymore mm. because humans are things that God might become. Mm. Mm. And I suppose that, that you know, thinking about Mary, well, there, there is an old tradition, isn't there, that she, she kind of grew up within the temple, you know, that her, so if, you, if you go to Jerusalem, the, the a little church called St Anne's Church, which is a, a, a wonderful crusader church, which is quite near the temple site, which is meant to be built on this, on supposedly the home of Anna, who was the um, the mother of the Virgin Mary, the place where she she, she grew up. Holy Annie, God's granny. There you go, Holy <laughs> Annie, God's granny. That's right. Yeah, but that idea of you know Mary, what I'd like to think of you know, if, if that's true, we don't quite know. Is that scriptures we have don't don't tell us, but it's <clears throat> you know there are kind of you know ancient traditions that suggest this that. If that is true, that she kind of grew up within the temple precincts and was a regular worshipper and was brought up within that environment, where and that just begins to kind of fill out the, the background to why she did say yes at that moment. She is someone who had come to know God, had come to worship God, had right from the very earliest days been part of the worshiping community, and therefore it's kind of interesting, isn't it? The, the role of liturgy in shaping our characters. Mm. So. We're I mean, because she would have been part of the temple liturgy if this yep. tradition is, is well-grounded. Uh, and actually, that's what regular... In, in being carried along by the rhythm of the liturgy mm. does to you, is mm. it makes you, in the end, more likely to say yes mm. when demands are made of you by life. And it's a very dangerous yes that she says, isn't it? And yep. she doesn't put barriers around it. She doesn't say, I'll say yes, provided that this, 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 and this, provided I'm safe, provided nothing nasty happens to them. She doesn't put those kind of conditions on the yes. Yeah. Um, so, so again, she's, that's part of uh, us learning our response at Christmas. What, are we going to say yes to God's invitation? Um, are we going to uh, make that dangerous step into um, trusting that God has a, has a real uh, joy and plan for us, even if it will be scary at times and dangerous. What would you, what do you make of Joseph? Because I guess he's a figure that we maybe don't think a great deal in about. It doesn't, he doesn't occur, occur much in the stories. And again, you often hear the um, there's another tradition that he was quite a bit older than than Mary. Possibly, maybe he had died by the time that Jesus 
comes into his ministry because he doesn't really not appear in the in the stories yeah. of Jesus, whereas yeah. Mary's there. Yeah. You know, she's always around, but Joseph isn't around, and so quite possibly he had passed away by the time Jesus enters into his his ministry later on. So he's a kind of smaller character in it. Um, what, are you, what are your reflections on 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 Joseph's part in the story? I'm, I'm a great fan of Joseph. Um, I I love the little, uh, it's Matthew's gospel that really tells us about Joseph in, in the nativity stories. Um, and I think that that's quite telling because what you see in Joseph is somebody who's utterly uh, obedient to uh, to the law that he's grown up with. He, he wants to treat Mary well, um, he, um, but he is planning to put her aside. Um, but he lets God overrule him. Oh. Um, he he hears um, God telling him to do it a different way and and does it and, it, and again Matthew is writing for a community of people having to navigate their way um, through uh, the, the religion they've inherited and uh, and it's it's um, uh, and the response that Christians make to that religion through the coming of Jesus Christ um, uh, and uh, I think Joseph is sort of Matthew's ideal Christian mm. I would say. Mm. And he's somebody who's, just from the, the, the story of the dream, whose subconscious is porous to mm. uh, other dimensions of reality coming in. Um, and, and there's something quite kind of uh, touching about that, I think, that, that somehow, you know, I, I don't often have dreams in which angels appear. Um, mm. that, but the fact that he did is perhaps you know, something about the specialness of the occasion, but also that he's just habitually open mm -hmm. in, his, in his deep places mm -hmm. in a way that most of us aren't, yeah. I suspect. And that, that willingness, I, mean, I often think of jo Joseph strangely when, it thinks, when you think of the Magnificat, you know, Mary's great hymn about, you know, God raising up the lowly. And I sometimes think of Joseph in that regard because... You know, he, he, was, he seemed to be quite happy to play a quite a small part in the thing, and he was not the biological father of Jesus. You know, he had to bring up a child that was not his own mm. child. He had to kind of endure the the shame of presumably people sniggering and you know whispering behind his back and thinking that you know, well, you know, here, where's his baby come from? It's not his. All that kind of thing. No like, fool, like, like the. Um, fool. <laughs> front cover of Private Eye some years ago that had a picture of the adoration of the Magi by, by Bruegel and there's a couple of villagers at the back talking to each other uh, and the balloon coming out of one saying they're not married you know <laughs> and the other one saying no but it's a stable relationship <laughs> <laughs> very good yeah, I think that joke will make it into the final <laughs> edit but it's um, yeah so I, 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 I often think about what that must have been like for Joseph that sense of social shame mm. that that must have meant taking on and he could have quite easily stood on his own rights which which were the rights um, uh, that everybody would have agreed yeah on. Yes. he was perfectly entitled to yeah. kind of walk away and you know he was trying to do that in a gentle way not to bring shame upon her but he could have quite easily walked away and said you know I can't be associated with this mm. but the fact that he doesn't do that is again his is kind of yes to this story, even if mm. it's a smaller part, and and there's something something quite deeply Christian about that. Not not actually wanting to be the centre of attention, not needing to be the centre of attention, to actually allow God to be the centre of things, not Himself. And that's something that takes a 
rest of us quite a long time to learn. And um, Joseph seemed to have that. Do you, do you think it's fanciful? I suspect it might be, but, it, but it's very interesting, isn't it, that the, the language Jesus uses about fatherhood mm. is all so positive. Mm. And obviously the primary place we see that is in Jesus' relationship with his heavenly father. Mm. But you sort of wonder if he had that language already as a positive thing mm. because of his upbringing, because of, you know, we're told that people said, isn't that, it wasn't Joseph the carpenter, his father? Yeah. So he did, there is some suggestion that he did have some years growing up with Joseph as a father figure. Mm. Um, and it, it would be strange to think of him using that language so positively about God if his own um, experience of fatherhood had been, yeah. uh, earthly fatherhood had been yeah. negative. Yeah, no, I think that, that, makes, that makes a great deal of deal of sense that and it maybe just fills out a little bit of the, the character of Joseph as someone who um, and it, it must have been the case that in, in a way in the providence of God Jesus's understanding of fatherhood must have been shaped by by Joseph his experience of, because that's that's for all of us you know our experience of fatherhood is basically our own fathers for better or worse and mm. that's how we learn what a father is and now as we grow and as we grow into Christian faith, uh, even those fathers that are less than perfect, we can begin to learn of another kind of fatherhood, which is beyond that. But you almost start, you have to kind of start with your own father. And so presumably Jesus must have done that too. And therefore... Yeah, I'm glad you don't think it's a stupid idea. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I mean, it gives you the language, doesn't it? Yeah. Your, your own experience mm. of... Uh, and is there, is there, and is there a, a moment in the Christmas story or the Christmas kind of accounts of the, the scriptures that you keep going back to and find particularly meaningful. Um, there are so many different elements of the Christmas story, the you know, the um all the way through from the, the Annunciation to Mary, all the way through to the flight into Egypt and the angels and the shepherds and the, everything else that go on there for very so very familiar stories to us. Um is there one part of it that, that you either keep coming back to, or maybe even this Christmas, you might want to kind of dwell upon and meditate on a little bit more. Um, I suppose it's, it's, it's in character for somebody who studies the problem of evil, but uh, it's sometimes the kind of really difficult bits of the story, uh, the really angular, mm -hmm. harsh, um, cruel bits of it. The, the fact that the story of Herod is there, um, admittedly, a little bit after. <laughs> Uh, the actual birth narratives but that's a way of saying God's coming to history as it is not as we tend to depict it on Christmas cards uh, or in some of the more sugary carols uh, this is this is reality and God has entered it and been threatened by it uh, and and that is what is going you know, if, if, if that's not the case if God is only relevant to the nice bits of life, then he's not adequate for human uh, need. Um, whereas if, in fact, he's come into a situation of, you know, we, we, we are talking now at the time of the invasion of, of Ukraine, where you know, tyrants do horrible things. And if God doesn't enter into that, God isn't going to make the difference that we need God to make. Mm. I remember, um, I mean, I, I, I quite often have led trips to the Holy Land with um, 
people are going on, on pilgrimage. And I remember some time ago, um, we were planning one of these trips, and it was a time, you know, as often happens in Israel-Palestine at the moment, where there was a lot of tension and difficulty and um, trouble going on in, in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And I remember someone coming to me saying, oh, no, no, I, I'm not going to come on the trip, you know, because with all this, all that stuff going on, it would really spoil it for me. Um, I, I want it to be kind of the way I've always thought about, you know, Jesus and the Holy Land, a nice peaceful place. I kind of, I kind of thought, I see you slightly missed the point here. That <laughs> um, I see, yes, it, yes, it's messy and it's complicated at the moment, you know, with Israel-Palestine. But it was messy and complicated at the time of Jesus as well. And actually, to think you can go to a place and be somehow lifted above all the kind of messiness of politics and life and history is to kind of not get what the incarnation was about. Because I think it seems to me that, that what that says to us is that, 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 and this may be at the heart of you know, um, of Christmas, that God enters precisely into the middle of the kind of life that you are living right now. So I guess everybody listening to this God, you'll have stuff going on in your life which is messy. Very few of us live untouched, pure, but none of us do, lives. We've all got that sort of mess in our background, in our experience, in our relationships and so on, but it's precisely into that that mess that, that, that God comes in, in Christ. And it's precisely into that very um, complexity that, that God enters and so it's not a, a sort of you know scene on a Christmas card which is kind of nice for one part of the year it's a bit of escapism which is kind of often the way we think of it this is God coming right into the heart of that messy reality that is our experience of life which is why I, th I think the bit that I keep going back to is John 1 mm. which um, sort of tells it from the other end doesn't it and, and I, I pretty well every um, Christmas, I think you will hear John 1 read at some Christmas service or, or other. Um, and uh, it does make the point about God comes into this world and a lot of people, it's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it? A lot of people don't mm. recognize mm. God. Um, but it starts, again, way back, John, it starts that th this, this birth uh, of, of Jesus into our world um, is uh, starts back with the, the Father giving himself to the son uh, and the son giving himself to creation um, and so uh, again it, it, it's about the whole character uh, of God and how uh, God interacts with us um, uh, so I, um, I, I think that it is it doesn't sound as though it's saying the same thing as the Herod stories but actually there is that sense of um, profound uh, realism that's also um, caught up into something much bigger and much more hopeful because this is this is God uh, who's come into this mess um, and and John 1 says that and what God's come for is to make us sisters and brothers of the Son to give us that relationship that we see in all eternity between Father and Son to invite us into that and that um, that is the most extraordinary thing I think Christians we haven't always had a reputation for being full of joy huh. which is why I think Christmas is a um, is is a is a wonderful gift to have given um, the wider world, uh, and I uh, wouldn't want to take it back by being grumpy about it. But this is why it's joyful because it's about God, which is why it can be joyful, even in a world of threat, and because it's not actually about circumstance. No, uh, it's about God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I mean back to the one John passage in it. 
in the beginning was the word it, it, it explicitly picks up on Genesis 1 and sort of retells that story that it's the word that was there in the beginning it's the word that has become incarnate so this is that sort of central fact of history that God showed up um, and you know there's a um, W.H. Auden wrote a, a poem in the 1940s called um, For the Time Being um, where he has this line that says something like um, God has become incarnate nothing else matters almost that, that sense of you know that, that and you know and, and in, the, in the middle of the 1940s when you had the kind of the second world war mm. rampaging around a sense of Europe falling apart as I see that God has entered into that and actually nothing else matters at the end mm. of the day other than this central fact of history although it is also true I know that's not in any way knocking that but it's also true that everything else matters yeah. because yeah. of this um, but everything else matters because of this yeah. exactly exactly yes. yeah yeah GK Chesterton the place where God was homeless and all men are at home I think that's mm. his mm. house of mm. Christmas poem at the end yeah. of that yeah. God comes to be homeless so that he makes this a his home and therefore home for all of us which is I always find it incredibly touching how people are willing to join in Christmas celebrations how many people will come to a public carol singing mm -hmm. um, how many people still want to come to um, a service in church at Christmas um, I think it's one of those places where where the, the deep connections haven't quite been lost even if people mm. couldn't say why they want to do this mm. um, and even if they, you know, roll up in church a little the worse for drinking all their advent calendar. I wouldn't have waited that long. <laughs> um, there, there is some sense in, in which th this goes deeper still. And, and a resonance, I think, that is felt even when the church's presentation falls so short of that resonance yeah. and I think that's what is going on in a certain amount of the people coming at Christmas because they're not there the rest of the year because they don't actually expect the church to live up to that resonance mm. Mm. Um, but it's still there it is still there well we have um, reached the end of our time we should uh, draw our conversation Medically to a close. No. <laughs> well, hopefully not. <laughs> not anticipating too much. We're all getting on a bit, but not that badly. And uh, anyway, it's been, well, it's been fascinating to talk about Christmas and our experience of that. And so uh, if you are listening to this just before Christmas, may we all wish you a very happy Christmas. If you're not, then whatever time of year you're listening to this, I hope it's a good day for you. And uh, so um, thank you again for listening to this episode of GodPod. We'll be back again with another episode before too long. So it's goodbye from me. And... And from me. And from me. <laughs> Goodbye. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.